topics we want to deal with here. And uh, we'll just jump right in. Uh, what we're going to address here is the uh, latest of what's going on in Ukraine. <clears throat> and then I want to talk about uh, the UAW strike, which appears uh, may be uh, expanding somewhat. And then the talk about uh, the media and the pundits about, oh, soft landing here for the economy. And that brings up the Fed rate hikes and government shutdown and other related topics. And if we have time after that, uh, I want to get back to this uh, topic that I wanted to talk about for the last couple of weeks here. And I've been doing it in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, about labor exploitation. What is labor exploitation and why is it increasing, intensifying? Um, I am writing a book about this just entitled Exploiting Labor uh, under neoliberalism and explaining how the exploitation and taking of value and money and wealth from workers and giving it to capitalists has really been occurring. As I've said in previous shows, briefly, you can see this in a number of statistics, uh, relative shares, how much capital is getting, how much labor is getting has been shifting in the favor of capital over the years. Productivity uh, gains uh, have been all accruing to uh, uh, the capitalists <clears throat> and not <clears throat> reflected in wage, wage gains for the workers. And then uh, thirdly, this uh, statistics uh, analysis by uh, this economist at UC Berkeley, Emmanuel Saez, and his buddy, Thomas Piketty, uh, which uh, has showed uh, the 1% as increasing its total share of national income, uh, and uh, the bottom 80% is given its share to them. Uh, okay, so those are the, the major uh, aggregate indicators that something's going on, a shift uh, income going on in this country. But of course, the shift is enabled by uh, intensifying the exploitation of workers and labor uh, at the production level. And uh, I guess the question is uh, explaining uh, this great income inequality and why it's growing. You can't explain it uh, without explaining uh, how exploitation is intensifying. Uh, you know, academics, mainstream academics and, and others just sort of point to the end result and say, oh, income inequality is growing. Well, how and why is the real question. Okay, so uh, if we have time, we'll come back to that uh, point. But if we don't, then I'm going to save that uh, discussion about exploitation, income inequality uh, for a full show here subsequent to, to today. Well, let's see how far we get, okay? All right, let's start with Ukraine. Uh, we're at a strategic juncture in the Ukrainian war, the U.S. proxy war here uh, that was uh, instigated in 2021 by the Biden administration. As I've said before, that's why they uh, helped the Skelter uh, uh, left uh, Afghanistan in August of 21. Um, they were planning uh, this event uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, which uh, 
developed over the closing months of 2021 with uh, the Biden administration uh, allowing, encouraging uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians to start talking uh, aggressively, uh, not only about uh, taking back those Crimea and so forth, but joining NATO and, oh, we, we Ukraine won nuclear weapons and so forth. Uh, the U.S. let them uh, rattle the cage, promising them um, military support. In fact, the military support goes back to 2014, after the U.S. engineered uh, a coup d'etat of uh, the government that was just elected that was moderately pro-Russian. That government wanted to uh, uh, have trade relations and so forth with Russia and with Europe. Uh, they wanted both, uh, play both against the middle, but uh, the nationalists uh, with proto-fascist ground forces uh, wanted uh, a complete break from Russia, and they got it. Just to give you some background here, uh, they got it because uh, Victoria Newland, the prime neocon in U.S. foreign policy and government for years now, I believe she was a um, protege of Dick Cheney, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, she was a um, finance capitalist out of Chicago, got into the government as part of the neocons that flooded into the government in the late 90s under Clinton and uh, then early on 2000s under Bush. Neocons have been running foreign policy in this country ever since. That's why we're in, engulfed in these never-ending wars. One ends and another one begins to keep it all going. Um, Victoria Newland engineered the, uh, the coup using uh, fascist street forces there in Ukraine and bragged about it, having spent $5 billion. U.S. spent $5 billion funding these groups to bring about the coup d'etat there in early 2014, chased the... Uh, pro-Russian uh, elected in November 13 uh, president out. Uh, he fled, fled the country and the right wing uh, took over. A lot of uh, ground forces, uh, you know, unabashedly saying, you know, that they were followers of uh, Stepan Bandera. Uh, this is a guy, uh, Bandera is a guy during uh, World War II who was a fascist. There was a lot of East Europeans that were fascists, not just in Germany, but Romania and Hungary. They all had strong fascist governments and movements. And uh, this guy Bandera tried to establish that in Western Ukraine. Um, and he sided with the Nazis when they invaded Ukraine, uh, helped uh, form a division of Ukrainian uh, SS Nazi members here. Uh, and played a big role in in uh, murdering um, tens of thousands of Ukrainian Jews. Uh, anyway, this guy Bandera is the big hero of uh, the Ukrainian uh, right wing, which is running the government over there now, and has been since 2014. Well, the U.S. Uh, came in in 2014. Uh, as I said, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, uh, who was the Under Secretary of State 
for the U.S., uh, for all of Eastern Europe, um, help finance and engineer that and place, put people in government afterwards, pro-U.S. And from 2015, 2014 on, the, the U.S. just deepened its relationship and control, uh, particularly in the economy. Uh, in fact, if you go and look at the uh, chambers of commerce, in uh, Ukrainian cities today, and I don't mean just Kiev, but uh, Lviv and um, Odessa, Krivorog and Kharkov and all those places. Just look at the uh, chambers of Congress and, uh, you know, they're heavily populated now with U.S. companies. So, uh, uh, you know, Victoria Newland became the economic czar after the coup, appointed by, by the Ukraine parliament. Yeah, they appointed her as the economic czar in 2014 or 15. Um, they had to change their laws because, uh, you know, that role position was not allowed by foreigners, but they changed it to let Victoria run the economy. And that's when all of the uh, U.S. companies started flooding in. And that's when the U.S. Uh, politically military began playing a bigger role. Um and what happened was uh, the war uh, really began in 2014-15 when part of the decision was uh, to take back the provinces in the eastern part of the country, uh, the Ukrainian government take back, uh, even using military force, those provinces that uh, were breaking away. Uh, the Crimea already broke away uh, when Russia occupied it in 2014 protected strategic base, uh, which uh, was Sebastopol, uh, naval base there, uh, but also the eastern provinces in what region called Donbass, the Donetsk and um, Luhansk provinces. Um, the Ukrainian army began shelling uh, that, that region, uh, which uh, mobilized itself <clears throat> Uh, to oppose uh, the policies of the uh, neo-fascists in the government there. Uh, and uh, it didn't do too well, very successfully. Didn't wasn't very successful. And what, what happened was a brokered agreement here in Minsk, uh, the capital city of Belarusia, uh, between the new uh, Ukrainian government and the breakaway provinces in Russia involved in that to sort of suspend uh, the military operation. Uh, but uh, it was just a ruse by the West and the U.S. and NATO, which was admitted here last year, in the first year of the war, 2022, by the then Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, and the President of France, Francois Hollande, at the time of the Minsk Agreement in 2015, and they admitted that, oh, uh, they never intended uh, to have Ukraine abide by the Minsk Agreement, which was kind of like a truce. Uh, they, uh, quote, uh, it, it was just to buy time. That's a quote from Merkel and Hollande today uh, about their role in the, that uh, negotiated uh, so-called truce. So they never intended that. The U.S. military deepened and deepened its uh, role in the building of the Ukrainian mm -hmm. army. Um, that sort of came to a, a standstill when Trump got elected and the Democrats could not pull that off. 
but it laid on the shelf as a U.S. strategy. And as uh, soon as Biden got elected, they dusted it off and they began to implement it. And I believe that's why they uh, hurried out of uh, Afghanistan, because they knew they were going into uh, uh, Ukraine. And uh, they, they provoked the Russians uh, to invade. Uh, they intensified, they, the U.S. and Ukraine, NATO together, intensified the attack on the eastern provinces. Now the Ukraine army was much stronger. In the intervening eight years, it had built up um, deep, deep defenses there in the Donats area uh, and uh, began attacking. <clears throat> and that's when Russia came in. In 2022, Russia attempted to have some discussions with the U.S. and the U.S. never even returned a call for months in the late 2021. So anyway, uh, that's that's where we uh, how we got into this this whole uh, uh, crisis here. And as I've written and talked about, um, you know, there are phases to this Ukraine war. What you had was uh, first phase, uh, Russia came in with force uh, and uh, intimidated uh, pretty much and ran overran the uh, uh, took back the Luhansk province, which had been lost in invading years, and took a big chunk of the uh, southern provinces of uh, Zaporizhia and Kherson, which is just north of Crimea. Uh, and also, uh, you know, invaded northern uh, Ukraine around Kharkov and uh, encircled, partly encircled Kiev. Uh, this was called the Russian uh, Special Military Operation, SMO. Um, but it was under understaffed, you know. I mean, you can't invade a country with 190,000 troops, which is what this initial Russian invasion was, you know, maybe 100,000 combat troops, which amounts to one major division in each of the four regions. Uh, you're not going to do anything except try to intimidate Ukraine uh, into coming to the negotiating table. Uh, Russia never intended to uh, try to take Kiev, even though it encircled part of it. It was an intimidation move, and it worked because uh, in uh, March or April, within weeks of the Russian invasion, what happened was uh, the Ukrainians came to the bargaining table with Russia in Istanbul. Uh, but Boris Johnson in the UK, which had played a deep role, leading role in this, this instigating this war, uh, pretty much uh, quickly flew into Ukraine and uh, told Zelensky and others, uh, no, no, you don't agree to anything. We're going to win this war. And that was the end of the, the negotiations. They had actually uh, agreed to uh, terms on paper and... Uh, you know, Russia, uh, I don't know what the terms actually were, but it was pretty much leave uh, Kiev intact and the government intact as uh, long as it didn't join NATO. Uh, but anyway, the U.S. and the U.K. and NATO uh, believed they could uh, uh, win this war. Uh, and what happened was uh, over the summer of 22, uh, the U.S., uh, uh, got more deeply involved in the Ukraine military and built up, uh, and they'd mobilized several hundred thousand more of Ukrainians. And by the, by the end of the last summer, the Ukrainian uh, forces uh, outnumbered uh, the Russian forces. 
who were spread kind of thin in the north. Uh, Russia withdrew from Kiev and some of the other places in the north and brought their troops back down to the Donbass in the east. Uh, but they were, you know, spread very thinly. Uh, and uh, the U.S. Uh, engineered strategy with a larger Ukraine force now uh, attacked in the north and uh, the Russians had to pull back and consolidate. All this happened uh, about a year ago, August and September. So it looked like a defeat, but actually it was a, a retreat by the Russia to consolidate their forces because they were outmanned and they knew it. Uh, and then over the winter, however, a new phase in which Russia added uh, several hundred thousand more troops. Uh, they're at about 400,000, I think, now, uh, and dug in with deep uh, defensive uh, lines there. Uh, and uh, that occurred over the winter. And that, that will probably historically be looked at the big strategic error of the Ukrainian army. Uh, let the Russians actually uh, uh, take uh, six, six to eight months to really deepen their defenses and add hundreds of thousands of more troops. So they were more uh, uh, equally um, paired in terms of uh, uh, manpower with, with the Ukrainians. Uh, but the fact that the Russians were in deep defense and continued to have uh, air superiority and superiority in artillery, uh, and they were dug in now, <clears throat> made the uh, launching finally of the U second Ukrainian offensive in June of this year, uh, doomed pretty much. And that's what we've seen to bring it up to the current. What we've seen is that uh, this offensive in the east here by the Ukraine since June, almost four months now, has gone nowhere. What you got is uh, fighting over uh, uh, marginal small villages uh, in the South Zaporizhia area, uh, an attempt to take back uh, this city that they lost uh, uh, further north called Bakhmut, right? Uh, and hold the line in um, the northern uh, Kharkov region. Um, Ukraine does not have the troops to do that, especially without air superiority and artillery, a lack of artillery. Uh, uh, in in Scots, they are defensive lines. And there's been massive losses of uh, Ukrainian forces, men and material, over the last four months. Uh, the uh, offensive has failed, no doubt about it. You know, you get reports, and they're not always accurate if they come out of Kiev or Moscow, but you get reports of uh, fighting over these small villages on the on the front lines, you know, little villages like Robotnia and um, Verbovia. Uh, these are little villages of, uh, you know, maybe, well, Robotnia had about 450 people in it. It's totally destroyed now. Uh, Verbovia, maybe 50 or 100, maybe, I think. Uh, so it's back and forth, you know, one side uh, uh, enters into the periphery of the sh completely destroyed uh, village. The other side shells it <clears throat> and uh, uh, drives them out, and they occupy the south side of the, uh, of, of the village and vice versa. This goes on and on. But it's very clear 
a lot of independent estimates are that uh, the Ukrainians have have uh, lost, uh, killed, and injured um, probably around 60,000-70,000 just in this summer offensive. And at the same time, uh, maybe uh, three, 350,000 on a total war. Uh, the Russians, uh, much less because they're just hunkering down in defensive positions now. Uh, and Russia is further mobilizing here now, uh, several hundred thousand more uh, troops, volunteers this time. Uh, and uh, what we see is the failed of Ukrainian offensive, and they're going to have to. Uh, uh, retreat uh, well in place and uh, rebuild their their military and that brings us to where we are now you know uh, very clearly at a juncture here where the offensive has failed even US General Milley said uh, a month ago they have about a month to make some gains um, and then the winter uh, rains and so forth uh, enter in uh, by the way, one indication of the failed uh, uh, dissipating offensive is uh, that the Ukrainians are attacking now just uh, uh, with infantry. Uh, they're sort of uh, husbanding their uh, remaining armor. Uh, they don't want to expend it, which is a sign, you know, that they're running out of steam. Uh, anyway, uh, now there's talk. Uh, you know, uh, Zelensky uh, is uh, getting impatient and saying we need more weapons from the West, from the U.S. You know, the U.S. has given them all this hardware, and the U.S. has said they got all they need to win, uh, but they're not winning because uh, they're not following the U.S. St- strategy, which would be to concentrate forces in the South, not across the whole 800-mile front. Uh, but the Ukrainians have been doing that. So anyway, uh, you know, what you got is um, demands for more advanced uh, weaponry by Ukraine. Uh, they want these long-range surface-to-surface missiles called ATACMS. That's an acronym, A-T-A-C-M-S. Uh, they want F-16s. Uh, and they say that'll be a game-changer. But, you know, all along they've been talking about game-changing weapons, and they haven't changed the game uh, you know, there's the uh, British challengers, supposedly indestructible tanks that uh, are being destroyed, uh, German Leopard 2 tanks. Uh, there was the, the Patriot missiles from the U.S., which the U.S. Stopped, stopped giving them because they were getting wiped out. Uh, there were uh, Stinger missiles, you know, hand-to-hand mis- um, man-made man- used missiles to take down aircraft. That was supposed to change the game. Uh, Long-range 155-millimeter U.S. artillery called HIMARS, that was supposed to change the game. Uh, Britain uh, has given them uh, these long-range cruise missiles called Storm Shadows. That hasn't changed the game. Uh, And, you know, the Ukrainians say we need these new uh, long-range artillery uh, surface-to-surface missiles that will change the game. And we need F-16s, that will change the game. That's not going to change the game. The offensive is over. Uh, and uh, more importantly, Zelensky isn't going to get these things. Well, I think this morning, 
Biden announce a, a limited number of attackers. Uh, well, why? Why aren't, aren't they not getting more uh, weaponry now? Um, because the uh, old Soviet weaponry that was all over Eastern Europe has been already given to them, and uh, the Eastern European countries don't want to really uh, give them the latest weaponry that's been backfilled to them by the U.S., i.e. F-16 planes. There's a few countries are going to send a couple token early F-16s. Uh, but, uh, you know, the most advanced weaponry, the Eastern Europeans, Poland's and Baltics, want to keep for themselves. Uh, they've uh, burned up all the old Soviet stuff, the Soviet tanks and planes and so forth. Uh, and uh, Ukraine says, we need more, we need more. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, you know, one one very indicative uh, uh, issue has been um, uh, artillery shells. Uh, Ukraine has been shooting off about seven thousand artillery, one fifty five millimeter uh, shells here daily. Well, the U.S. only produces twenty five thousand a month, and uh, the U.S. and European stocks of long-range artillery, 155s, uh, have been depleted, and you're getting pushback now from European and U.S. military, so saying we don't want to, you know, totally deplete our our supplies of these uh, weaponry because then we'll be in big trouble. And that's going on, of course, with this Attackums missile. They're going to give them a few. They gave them uh, one or two Patriot systems, that's all. So so the U.S. and NATO have been dribbling uh, weaponry to them, uh, and the, the weaponry hits, hits the battlefront and gets destroyed, and they ask for more. That's what's been going on. And now we got a flap going on, a political diplomatic flap, and that is uh, Zelensky really took a shot uh, at the Europeans, particularly the Poles, uh, politically here. He gave an interview for The Economist a couple of weeks ago, and, and he really criticized Europe for not giving them more weapons and more modern weapons quickly. Uh, and uh, he sort of have a veiled threat and said, you know, do you think all of these 14 million of Ukrainian Refugees in your country are going to uh, sit quietly uh, while you let us flounder, you know? He's saying this to the Western Europeans, right? Uh, well, you know, the Poles and the EU and others, uh, they thought this was rather ungrateful because they've been giving them so much. Uh, and it's a big flap here. Uh, and it, it really uh, burst open here with uh, the Poles uh, over the grain. Uh, you know, a lot of the grain shipment now, uh, the Russians have stopped uh, the deal allowing Ukrainian grain uh, to go by ships, uh, you know, out of Ukraine into the Black Sea. They stopped that because the Ukrainians were bringing these ships back loaded with uh, uh, military hardware. So the Russians dropped the agreement. And now the grain has to be shipped, a lot of it, uh, by land into Poland and Eastern Europe. Well, what's happening is the grain shipments are being sold along the way by speculators. And it's uh, Ukrainian grain is flooding Poland and Hungary and places like that. Uh, and it's dropping the price of, uh, of grain. And Polish farmers are raising uh, uh, complaints here 
and you got an election in another month or so for the presidency in Poland. Uh, so combine that fact with uh, uh, Zelensky's uh, nasty uh, economist interview, and the polls said, uh, the polls got pissed off, and the president of Poland said, uh, uh, look, uh, no new weapons for you guys in Ukraine. Uh, once again, Poland wants to keep the latest U.S. weapons it's getting. They don't want to funnel that to Ukraine. They gave them all the old Soviet stuff, uh, but they don't want to funnel that. And uh, it was interesting, the interview, uh, the Polish premier actually referred to Zelensky as a, quote, drowning man, unquote, uh, that will grab you and pull you under the water if you let it, right? Um, and he said, quote, Poland is going to build its own forces for Poland. Well, this is a big deal here, you know. And uh, Zelensky comes uh, to the UN and he, he gets snubbed. Uh, half, half of the people, delegates to the UN, walked out on his speech or never showed up, right? And then uh, U.S. Uh, Speaker of the House McCarthy uh, denied him a request to speak to Congress again. Um, and, uh, you know, the U.S. clearly is, uh, is not happy with Zelensky, and neither are the Western Europeans here. I think eventually uh, he's going to be replaced. At what time frame and by whom in Ukraine, we'll see. But the U.S. and NATO is not going to put up with a guy who's uh, uh, bad-mouthing them and uh, making demands ungratefully that uh, the West now is wanting to, uh, even the United States uh, wants to uh, slow uh, the providing of, uh, of ammunition, it just can't, and other key strategic uh, weaponry, which it wanted to send to Taiwan uh, and the Pacific, and it can't because it's, uh, it's going into the black hole in Ukraine. Uh, I think the U.S. really wants to kind of freeze this conflict through the 24 election year here. Uh, rebuild the uh, military in Ukraine slowly here that it needs to. Uh, it's been so decimated uh, and restore it. And maybe uh, if uh, Biden's reelected, which I don't think will happen, uh, you know, in 2025, have a new, uh, uh, a new offensive, you know. In other words, let's have a Minsk three here. <laughs> but I don't think the Russians are going to fall for Minsk three. Uh, they're not going to fall for freezing the conflict, once again, that the U.S. wants to, which is just temporary, right? Uh, and we will see. And that's kind of where we're at. You know, the offensive is gone, uh, petered out here, uh, big losses. Uh, Ukraine uh, military needs to be rebuilt. Uh, its economy is continually being uh, decimated by uh, Russian missile strikes. Um, not to say that uh, Ukraine hasn't struck back on, on a few occasions here, uh, you know, in, in the Crimea and so forth. But um, pretty much uh, uh, the long run uh, it does not look good for, for Ukraine here. And Russia, I'm sure, is just going to sit them out, sit them out and keep doing what it's doing. Because, as I said before, the main, uh, the main finding here of this war is that uh, – uh, you you cannot 
have a successful offensive, whether it's Russian or Ukrainian, uh, where uh, the number of uh, men and materials roughly the same. Right? Uh, I don't think Russia can uh, mount a uh, an offensive against Ukraine because now they'll dig in, go defensive. They're already doing it. The the offensive uh, actions are pretty much uh, finished in the east here. And now the Ukrainians are, are trying to dig in here in a defensive position. Um, Russia needs, uh, you know, a five to one uh, man uh, advantage here for any offensive. And offensives now in modern military uh, are, are very destructive. Uh, you know, the Russians have probably lost at least 50,000 men here in the last 18 months. That's what we lost in uh, in uh, Vietnam over eight years, 50,000 in 18 months, and the Ukrainians, well over 300,000. I mean, it's it's just been a murderous, uh, murderous war with modern military. We will never see the kind of uh, uh, you know, mass uh, armored uh, formations maneuvering across flatlands and uh, in, in the millions that we saw uh, during World War II on the Eastern Front. Those days are gone because of technology. Anyway, uh, the question is, what will the U.S. do now? Will, it, uh, will politics move in the direction to slowly pull out uh, over time? Um, uh, will the e, uh, U.S. or and or EU NATO escalate its efforts if Russia starts driving the Ukrainians back, uh, you know, across the all the way back to Kiev, taking all the Russian-speaking regions? Uh, well, you know, can the U.S. and NATO do nothing in that case? Uh, should it happen? I don't think it will, but should it happen? That's a, another strategic choice. Right, uh, slowly pulling out. Not while the Democrats and Biden are in there. All right, uh, will the U.S. try to freeze the conflict or, you know, slow it down and uh, find an alternative to uh, Zelensky government? Well, they already got Zelensky to fire his defense minister. Uh, Zelensky is next. Who would they replace him with? Uh, that's a sticky, difficult move to pull off by the U.S., but that may be in the future here. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, is facing also uh, not just the depletion of its uh, military stores and growing opposition here now that the offensive has failed, uh, but the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, has a budget deficit this year of $1.7 trillion dollars. Uh, that's leading to this uh, government shutdown, right? Um, and there's going to be big cuts to U.S. budget. And can they cut social programs uh, and not cut defense spending? Or uh, they they won't cut Pentagon, but, you know, there's other forms of defense spending, including uh, the war costs, which are on top of the Pentagon's budget, you see, Uh Already there's a final bill of about $24 billion aid for Ukraine. The U.S. has given Ukraine somewhere between $100 and $200 billion so far. Uh, can it keep doing that uh, when it's got a $1.7 trillion budget deficit? And Republicans are using it as an issue here. And uh, we'll, we'll see whether uh, with negotiations for the rest of the year how Ukraine aid in 2024 comes out. Uh, but if there's a decline in Ukraine aid, then uh, that's even more reason why Zelensky isn't going to get uh, even more.
okay? Uh, he may get a symbolic uh, uh, you know, allotment of some weaponry here and there, uh, like they just announced with these uh, long-range attackums missiles. They're just going to get a, a, a small number of them, uh, just okay. as they got a small number of Patriot missiles. Uh, anyway, uh, that's the situation in Ukraine. It's at a juncture, historical, strategic. The U.S. strategy is shifting. Uh, Ukraine is losing on the ground here. Uh, it's it's not end game yet, uh, but it doesn't doesn't look good in the U.S. opposition and Europe, Poland, and other opposition. Uh, they're getting tired of it. Uh, uh, but the legacy of this war will be significant, I think, to wrap up this point here. Um, what is the legacy of this U.S. proxy war? Well, first of all, it fractured the global economic architecture, i.e. the U.S. Uh, economic empire. Uh, it strengthened uh, the Russia-China uh, relations, military and economic and otherwise. The sanctions did not really negatively affect the Russian economy that much, but caused inflation, added to inflation and serious economic problems, deindustrialization in Germany and so forth, uh, and pushed up world inflation to some. It expanded the BRICS, the B-R-I-C-S, you know, this is this alternative uh, a group of countries led by Russia, China, um, and India here. Uh, they've recently uh, expanded their membership, I think five or six more countries. Um, uh, that's significant. That would not have happened if it wasn't for this war and the sanctions. Right. Uh, it's um, accelerated the decline uh, of the U.S. dollar as global currency trading and, and, and uh, reserve currency. Uh, it's uh, undermined the IMF and the WTO. Uh, depleted U.S. military st stores and slowed down U.S. buildup of Taiwan. Okay, uh, goods, goods trades and commodities trade and money flows uh, um, globally, supply chains uh, have all been disrupted. So there's big economic consequences of this war. Uh, history will show it's been a disaster for the U.S. economic empire, and. Uh, Biden's going to have to pay uh, the price uh, uh, historically for this. Um, and uh, the neocons, of course, are, are behind it all. Neocons uh, just want to use force. The days of the diplomacy uh, and using a soft power, economic power uh, by the U.S. to run its empire are over. And uh, that's largely because the neocons uh, don't believe in that kind of, uh, of a strategy. Their strategy has always been uh, use the force, go to war, uh, you know, undermine the country, right? Regime change, uh, military action, uh, so forth. Uh, and 20 years of that is now paying the price. Uh, at some point, I think the U.S. is going to have to, uh, elites are going to have to relook at this this problem of uh, the neocons running U.S. foreign policy. They're destroying their own empire. History will show that. And history will show the legacy of this proxy war. Uh, the negatives far outweigh the gains, and I don't see much gains. Okay, so that's my uh, update.
of the Ukraine situation, you can go to my blog, jackrasmus.com, for articles I've been writing over the past 18 months uh, on this war, economic effects, and so forth. Um, and as I said, uh, uh, at the end of the year, at the two-year mark of the history, I will have a, a book uh, uh, coming out about um, uh, the Ukraine, Ukraine war and uh, how it's... Uh, it's caused the decline of the U.S. empire, accelerated the decline of the U.S. global economic empire. Okay, so enough on Ukraine. Uh, let's go to UAW. We have an announcement today that the UAW is expanding uh, the number of plants that it will be uh, striking. You know, it launched this thing with this questionable strategy, I think, last week of uh, only taking down one plant each uh, in GM, Ford, and... Uh, Stellantis, a.k.a. Chrysler, right? Only one plant each. Uh, what? You're not going to get them to the them the companies to the table by striking one plant. Uh, what's going on here? You know, I asked myself when this happened. Well, there's several explanations. One, uh, the UAW just does not have a sufficient strike fund of 850 million, I think it is, uh, to pay benefits for everybody walking out. And by the way, the benefits are only $500 a week. So about 2000 over a month. And that will just about cover uh, what uh, the workers will have to spend to get their own health insurance for their families, 2000 a month. Uh, and the rest will have to come out of their savings and credit cards. So uh, they, they, the UAW can't strike. You know, and the UAW has lost so much members, so many members, hundreds of thousands over the years, that the strike fund can't grow sufficiently anymore. It used to be over a million members. Uh, well, I, actually, I think in the early 70s, it was almost 2 million uh, UAW members. Uh, and now, you know, with a lot of the offshoring and moving of uh, by the auto companies, moving the plants to the south, which are ununionized, uh, the membership has dropped precipit precipitously. I think there's only 146,000 uh, auto workers in assembly, auto assembly plants in the U.S. left, 146. And I think the union itself is, uh, don't quote me exactly, maybe five, 600,000 members total, down from almost 2 million. Well, you can't build up a strike fund that way with that loss of membership, and they haven't. And uh, they're trying to uh, husband their strike fund. I think that's one reason why they only struck three plants, right? Uh, and I think also they're hoping that uh, the Biden administration, the Democrats, would intervene on their behalf to help them out in this negotiations. To do that, uh, you know, they don't want to uh, uh, damage the auto management companies that much, make it easier for Biden to intervene. Uh, because they probably think, you know, Biden has uh, uh, control over this uh, uh, big subsidy, tens of billions of dollars uh, to build electric vehicles. The U.S. taxpayers are going to pay these companies to build their new EV factories in the U.S. Uh, and I think uh, part of the UAW strategy is to uh, maybe see if we can get the administration, Democrats, to help us. Well... Maybe uh, Sean Fain, the president of UAW, ought to talk to the railroad uh, unions and see how much help they got <laughs> last year. Uh, so, and, and in the Teamsters, the Teamsters uh, just told the Democrats, "Stay out. We don't. We don't need your kind of help." Uh, so, uh, 
I think that's part of the strategy of going slow here uh, in intensifying the strike, uh, trying to get the Democrats to intervene and help them out behind the scenes, right? Um, but I think that's going to lengthen the strike, not shorten it. And the whole idea of a strike is to get the other side to the bargaining table to start negotiating again. Uh, but they're so far apart. You know, UAW is at 36% and uh, the company's at 20%. Uh, I think Stellantis made a small move because they were only at 17% uh, over the past week. They raised it to 20 So all the companies are at 20%. U.S. is at 36% package, right? Uh, still far apart. Uh, so today I hear I heard that uh, the UAW is expanding it to 38 more factories, more plants in the U.S. Uh, we'll see whether that um, brings the auto companies to the bargaining table. Uh, they certainly could afford to pay more. <clears throat> you know, they made 250 billion profits over the last decade, 34 billion this year alone. Uh, they've given 80 billion dollars in buybacks and dividends payments to their shareholders. Their CEOs have got a 40 percent raise since 2019, whereas the auto workers have experienced uh, a 19 percent wage decline since 2019, right? Uh, Biden, as I said, is giving them big subsidies. Uh, they got a big uh, subsidy with the Trump tax cuts in 2018. And in 2008-9, they got $80 billion bailout. So the auto companies are fat. They're doing okay. I mean, you don't, you don't give your CEOs a 40% increase uh, if they weren't doing okay. Uh, but they don't want to expend it. Uh, you know, they say, oh, we need this for our electric vehicle plants, right? They don't want to share it with the auto workers who, uh, you know, are asking for uh, uh, restoration of their pensions. Uh, they're asking for uh, let's end the two-tier wage system, uh, lower low-wage, uh, late-entry uh, hires here are getting um, well below uh, you know, think about it. Working in an auto plant for $18 an hour? I mean, in California, you can flip burgers now for 20 You know, $18 an hour? What the hell? And they top out at $32 an hour? That's nothing. That's like 50000 a year. You try living in California on 50000 a year in a family of four. Good luck, you know? Uh, so... Uh, Certainly, and they have no cost of living adjustment here with this inflation that's going to continue chronically three, four, five percent here for as far as the eye can see. Uh, airline pilots got a uh, forty percent um, increase over four years, you know, and auto workers are only asking right now for thirty six. Thirty six. Uh, the companies offered twenty over four and a half years. So the settlement will be for five years, like the Teamsters settlement, right? Uh, I, I think if there is a settlement, eventually it always is, it will be somewhere in the 20, 25%, about 25% uh, wages and benefits. You know, that's what, that's what I see happening here. Um, but the longer, uh, you know, the uh, UAW, uh, waits for the Democrats to help them, uh, the more difficult it's going to be here. And I think, uh, you know, 38 more plants here 
leaving Ford out, by the way, just by the way, just GM and Stellantis, which are the two weak weaker ones in terms of market share and economics. Um, and then Ford will match whatever. Ford settled, by the way, for a, a Canadian auto workers plant here, 5,600 here. I don't know what those terms are. So they're, they're leaving Ford out, and they're going after GM now. We'll see what happens, right? Okay. Now, this, uh, this strike, uh, you know, can have an impact on the economy. Economists are estimating uh, third quarter GDP uh, might be reduced by four-tenths of one percent. You know, it's maybe going to be a 2% GDP growth in the third quarter. Well, you know, almost one-fourth of that could be knocked off here by uh, uh, this strike in the third quarter. More in the fourth quarter if it continues. Now, this is related to, you know, mainstream economists and uh, business shows and politicians who keep saying, uh, oh, the economy is doing so good, U.S. economy, we're going to have a soft landing, and we're going to avoid a recession. Well, look, folks, we're already in a recession in manufacturing and in construction, right? Been contracting now for 10 consecutive months. The good sector, goods-producing sector economy is in recession, no doubt. What's keeping it afloat is some of the services. Uh, but the, the services are weakening, and I think they will continue to weaken uh, because they are so dependent on consumer spending. Right? Uh, well, certainly the auto workers aren't going to spend. You know, they got 150,000 of them, whether on strike or not, who are really watching their, their expenditures, I'm sure, and all the uh, secondary, tertiary uh, businesses dependent upon uh, the auto workers. Uh, uh, you got a government shutdown that looks likely this time, by the way, because the uh, Freedom Caucus, the right wing, is not going to let McCarthy uh, get away with another deal, even though they, they won like uh, they did back in, uh, I think it was June, with the debt ceiling deal, right? They got some concessions from uh, Biden to cut social program spending. They're already cutting social program, but now they're going to have to really cut social program spending. Uh, and if there's a government shutdown, uh, that will slow down the economy. Uh, we've got return of, uh, of energy and gasoline inflation going on, and food will creep back up. As a result, rents are still going on. Uh, we've got price gouging anew by pharmaceutical companies and and uh, baked goods companies. Uh, so inflation is going to remain chronic in the services. You know, as I've said last week, services inflation stuck around 5%, uh, 5%, 6%, and it's not going down. And now the Fed's not going to raise interest rates, so it's definitely not going down. And now we got student debt payments for 24 million people going to start, resume again, and in one more week. Uh, that's going to have an impact on general spending. So, you know, where is this strong consumer? Yeah, where is the strong consumer? You know, with more inflation, student debt payments, right? Uh, credit card debt is at $1.27 trillion, according to Bank of America. Uh, J.P. Morgan uh, CEO, um, uh, Jamie Dimon, said excess savings left over from the COVID uh era of programs is down to 200 billion from 2.1 trillion so just and that's probably 
concentrated at the upper end of uh, the income structure here. So uh, savings are gone, right? Credit cards are being tapped out. You can't refi your home for extra cash because in interest rates, mortgage rates are over 7%, right? Delinquencies on cards and auto loans are rising. Student debt payments, as I say, are resuming, right? And uh, banks, uh, uh, small regional banks in trouble are not lending. So where the hell is this soft landing coming from? It's not coming from the consumer. I don't believe two-thirds of the economy not coming from the consumer. And a lot of businesses can't afford to borrow at rates that are close to 10%. Where's the soft landing coming from? I don't see it. I just don't see it. But that's the mantra right now. And because, uh, you know, who wants the soft landing talk? Uh, well, you know, it's investors in stock market and so forth. Uh, they don't want interest rates to rise or stay high. Uh, the Fed yesterday said uh, the interest rates will stay high, even though they didn't raise rates, stay high. And boy, did the stock market take a dive as a result, right? Uh, they can't raise rates, the Fed, I've said, uh, to 6% because they got an unstable regional banking system, and uh, they've thrown $500 billion already at the banking system, regional banks. And they're getting these regional banks to sell off their assets to raise cash, right? Uh, over 10 of them uh, have been, of the big regionals, have been downgraded, uh, you know, by Moody's and S&P here, uh, which means they're uh, in debt, in trouble. Right, you got 1.7 trillion dollars in junk debt that has to be refinanced, and you got interest rates that, you know, the best rate at at seven percent. These junk bonds companies are paying 12, 13, 14 percent, and they got to roll over their their, you know, their current loans at 13, 14 uh, percent. A lot of them aren't going to get it rolled over by the banks. Uh, and uh, they're going to go under, right? And the Fed knows this and is tightening its rules and reserves and capital requirements in the banks, even the big banks, to hold more uh, in advance here in case, uh, uh, you know, they got to get bailed out, right? Uh, so what you got is uh, the Fed saying, uh, okay, we'll stop. You know, the, and another reason that the Fed is not raising rates, I think, is that uh, the interest payments on the national debt, uh, because of Fed high interest rates, has boomed. Right, the national debt is thirty-three trillion dollars and rising fast right now. In two thousand, it was six trillion. Yeah, uh, by two thousand eight, when Obama came in office, it was like nine trillion. And then when Trump came in office, it was like $17 trillion. Well, it's almost doubled since Trump came in office, 2017 to today in six years. It's almost doubled. Why? Well, big Trump tax cuts, $4.5 trillion, started in 2018. Uh, then you got the COVID crash and the bailouts, right? Uh, and the subsidies to corporations and so forth. And then you got the constant war spending and Pentagon spending increases going on. Uh, and then you got the inflation that followed COVID, right? And interest payments, because of higher interest rates in recent years, interest payments are 
are are now at $644 billion a year. You know, in 2019, it was less than $300 billion a year interest payments because the Fed was loaning out at zero interest, you see. It wasn't paying anything. But now it's, it has to pay, you know, five, four, five, six percent on the money that it borrows. Yeah, four, five, six percent. Well, that's why it's $644 billion. Uh, and that's why the Republicans are saying, oh, look, the total total annual deficit, $1.7 trillion. Well, $600 billion of that is just interest on the debt. They got to do something about it because they're wrecking uh, their whole fiscal policy. Monetary policy is not very effective anymore. Fiscal policy is hitting this $33 trillion, trillion-plus deficit, $33 trillion national debt, trillion-plus deficit every year. That's why I think there's going to be a government shutdown this time. And that's going to whack the economy big time. Yeah. Uh, you know, McCarthy, uh, the head of the House Speaker there, tried to uh, exempt uh, the military Pentagon spending uh, from this fight over paring down the budget as part of this government uh, shutdown thing, right? He tried to exempt four of the 11 uh, appropriations, money money funding bills that are at the center of all this uh, from any any cuts uh, well, the Freedom Caucus, the right wing, says no. You know, that's got to be part of it. The Ukraine aid has got to be part of it. Because we can't get the $1.7 trillion debt down, I mean deficit down, unless you do something about, unless you do something about runaway defense spending. You know, it's either Pentagon keeps its $850 billion, but you cut other defense spending, a.k.a. Ukraine aid, right? Uh, or the Pentagon itself has to give up some of its $850 billion. Well, the Pentagon doesn't want to do that, you see. That's why the Pentagon and the Army and U.S. military is pushing back, actually, on giving more weapons to Ukraine. They're pushing back, not just Poland, because the stockpiles are depleted and the U.S., you know, the military is saying, look, if you want us to go to war with China, you better start the buildup now. Well, you're siphoning off that buildup and throwing it in a black hole in Ukraine. Well, and the military doesn't like this. And uh, the Republicans in Congress say, you know, you're going to have to cut somewhere here because we can't keep going on with the $1.7 trillion deficit and $33 trillion debt going up $1 to $2 trillion every year. And interest on it because rates are high now, hitting six, seven, eight hundred billion a year. I mean that can't be sustained, and the politicians and elite know elites know it, and uh, that's why you know we're going to have a real punch up here with this time around with the debt ceiling deal. Okay, I'm out of here. Maybe next week I'll get to labor exploitation discussion. Walk the streets of screaming now